0: Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number of those who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came, And saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he had exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit, and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your holy, inspired word. Thank you, God, that you still speak to us today. God, that that when we read your word, this is not just an historical account of things long past. But this is meant for our instruction, for us to, to learn, to see principles of how you work And for us to be inspired to to go and do likewise. God, I pray that as we read this account, as we hear your word preached today, that you would move us in our hearts and our minds. That you would give us a desire to, to do great things and to speak of your great word for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the year 1922... It seems like so far to even think about, to relate to for us today in 2014, but the year 1922 really wasn't that long ago, and that was the first year that that man attempted an ascent of Mount Everest. People had always looked up to the mountain and thought, someday we'll try to climb that mountain, but in 1922 they actually attempted an ascent. And then every year after that, for 30 years, One years. They tried to assault Mount Everest, but they, they they failed. Some turned back, others died. But in 1953, think about that, 31 years of trying, of the world thinking this just isn't possible. And yet in 1953, a man named, an ordinary man really, named Edmund Hillary. He later became known as Sir Edmund but he was just a beekeeper. He was a beekeeper who, who had that as a hobby in the summer so that he could go climbing in the winter. After that, he had gone to the war, but he, he wasn't really remarkable or spectacular in anything. He was an average student. He was average in most things he did, but he was determined. He was determined and he was on a mission, and so Edmund Hillary together with, I have to look at this guy's name, Tinzing Norgay, In 1953, they summited the most difficult peak in the world. By 1990, some 37 years later, the success rate for reaching the summit was still only 18%. But by 2012, the success rate for reaching the summit was over 56%. And then in 2010... Jordan Romero became the youngest climber to, to ever summit Everest at age 13. I was thinking about that at the age of my son Noah. I couldn't imagine taking him up Everest. Uh, they, they took a picture, I think it was in 2012, of, of the traffic going up Mount Everest. And now is it no longer seem impossible. In fact, there's hundreds at a time that attempt to summit Mount Everest. And it's, it's literally a traffic jam. You have to wait four hours in line just to continue to go forward. It's relatively commonplace now. And Tibet is thinking of putting ladders up, of, up Hillary's step to make it even more accessible and even more of a tourist destination. Something that once seemed absolutely insurmountable has become relatively common. Something that seemed impossible was done by just an ordinary person who, who broke through those, those mental barriers, those mental boundaries, those, those barriers that, that existed really only in, in what they thought they were able to do. And what was previously unheard of and, and thought to be unreachable is, is commonplace, in it, and it took place through a relatively ordinary man. The passage that we read earlier from the book of Acts, it's kind of that, that story of what's happening. You see, Peter, previously in Acts, has just been revealed to by God that, that, that the Gentiles are to be preached to. And that the Gentiles are not to be called unclean, they're, they're, they're to be gone to. And so Peter has taken the good news to Cornelius and his household, but you really haven't seen the church go beyond that and so it says at the beginning of our passage that they were spread all throughout the regions of Phoenicia and Cyprus and Cyrene and, and Samaria, but, but they took the word only to the Jews. They were still not breaking through that, those, those cultural barriers, those social barriers, those ethnic barriers, and yet it took relatively ordinary people, people, in fact, we don't know anything about, to kind of break through and to, to do an extraordinary work for God by really ordinary, simple means, accomplished through ordinary, simple people. This so the main idea that I believe Luke's highlighting for us and that I want us to draw from this passage is that God just uses ordinary people and ordinary means. God uses ordinary people and ordinary means to expand his church. That's encouraging for us today because in this room, most of us are pretty ordinary and and we don't possess any great means, and yet God works through ordinary people and ordinary means to to do great things, to break through barriers, to to accomplish what we think is not able to be accomplished. And God uses ordinary people to do that. This account it really it, it tells of the expansion of the church through. Unknown people. Yeah, it it tells us about Barnabas and Saul, but it's really not as much about Barnabas and Saul. It's about God expanding his church. And right at the outset, we can see God using these ordinary people. Maybe they were beekeepers or tradesmen, or maybe they were teachers or businessmen, or maybe they were carpenters. We don't know what their occupation was, but we know that in the ordinary just dispersal that they, they experienced as they were spread out as they were persecuted as they faced opposition they went out just doing their jobs some might have been fishermen some might have been tradesmen of other types we don't know but in their normal everyday work they saw their lives as mission i love that video that mario shared with us earlier from paul Tripp. it's really all about that isn't it it's it's all about how god just uses ordinary people in ordinary means doing ordinary work To accomplish and carry out his great mission. The church, it says, had been hesitant really to carry the good news out from Jerusalem, but God used this persecution and suffering. Think about that for a moment just as a side note. He used some really bad things. The church was being persecuted. They were being harassed. He uses these bad things and he turns those bad things around, those seemingly awful things when, when the church is spread into regions they don't know when they have to go and find new jobs, new places to live, and they have to, to get to know new people and find out, will my business even work here? And yet God uses this, this bad thing for his good. Because God's always working His plans through all circumstances and all situations. And it says, Now the people who were scattered went as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, but they still hadn't, at the very beginning in, the, in, in verse 19, they had not yet shared with anyone except the Jews. If you remember in Matthew 28, at the at the end, really, of his time with the disciples, Jesus gave the disciples a command. We have it on the screen for you. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all, notice that word, all nations. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And he tells them to baptize them into." in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and to teach them to observe all that I commanded you. He says, I'll I'll always be with you to the end of the age. But yet, for some reason, the church was still kind of stagnant. The church was still comfortable. I think sometimes we can relate to that. We experience a mighty move of God in our own lives. We experience how God has saved us, and He's made us alive, and He's forgiven us. And we know that we're called to go and preach the gospel to all nations, and we've had the benefit of Acts and so many other places where the gospel is going forward through ordinary people, and yet sometimes we too can become kind of complacent and stagnant and subtly disobedient to God's command to go everywhere, to go into all nations, to all kinds of people, to all kinds of ethnicities. And in saying that, go and make disciples of all nations, Jesus started with saying, all authority in heaven and all earth has been given to me. You ever think about why he said that? It wasn't just that the disciples had confidence that, oh, Jesus has authority, so as we go, we're taking his authority and going. That's not quite it. The reason why he said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me is because he knew that he was speaking to a bunch of Jews who would have been told by God that they're not, they're not to, to, to intermingle with other ethnicities. They're not to go and, and be a part of other nations. They're not to share table fellowships. So what Jesus is saying, he's saying, I have all authority. So now I'm establishing a, a new commandment. I have all authority to, to completely redo. I have all authority to completely reform, to, to make new the commandments of God. And so because of that, I have authority to tell you to go to other nations. You don't have to worry about disobeying God or, or violating any kind of, of laws or taboos. I have authority, so go to all nations. And then now, in Acts, if you remember back in Acts 1.8, the last thing, what's the last thing that Jesus said to his disciples before he ascended into heaven to be at the right hand of the throne of God? Do you remember that? The last thing that Jesus said. You can cheat, you can look back in your Bibles. The last thing that he said, he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria and to the end of the earth. And this great persecution arose around Stephen in, in Acts six and through eight there, and, and after Stephen was, was murdered by stoning, I can't imagine seeing that, the church scattered. And God forced them out of their comfort zones. He forced them into areas that they weren't comfortable with because they'd not been deliberate or intentional about taking the good news to non-Jews. And then an angel speaks to to Peter and Cornelius both to show that God shows no partiality. And so we see in verse 20, then it says, Luke writes to us, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists also preaching the Lord Jesus. So, so at the outset, one of the things that I believe that, that Luke is trying to get us to see, that God is trying to get us to see is that God spreads His news through ordinary people. See, see who it says? Spread this news? Just men of Cyprus and Cyrene. It doesn't give names. It doesn't give names. And that's encouraging to me because almost all of us in this room will not have books or movies made about us. We won't have great stories told for generation after generation, but like these men who just preach the word faithfully, we'll receive all reward when God says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter in the joy of of your master, because God spreads his news through ordinary people. I saw an account the other day about how how plastic trash, it's polluting all the world's oceans, and it gets caught in these giant things called gyres, and, and there's, it's a problem because tons and tons and tons of, of garbage is collecting, and it's blocking out plankton, and it's chog, clog, clogging up the ocean and choking fish. and And there's this 19-year-old boy who was, I think, 13 or 14 when he came up with an idea. Well, why can't I do something about that? And so now there's this 19-year-old man, really, named... Uh, Boyan Slat, and he's unveiled plans to create an ocean cleanup array that can remove seven billion two hundred and fifty million tons of plastic waste from the world's oceans. If I have that figure right. And his solution is this 19-year-old guy. His solution is simple, but it's brilliant. It consists of these floating booms that are placed in, in different strategic locations and platforms to collect the trash passively. And he thinks, if this really works, then and if we get enough funding, it'll take about five years to clean up the stuff that's there, which really is a relatively short amount of time. He started an online fundraising effort, I think it was sometime earlier this year, maybe last year. He's raised two, over 2.2 million just from people giving to, to the effort. He's got a team of about 100 people. He's just an otherwise ordinary person. He's, he's spreading the word about needing to clean up our oceans, and he's, he's making headway. Just an ordinary guy. But he's being used pretty dramatically in, in the area of, an, of cleaning up the environment, Well, humanity has a problem of trash, and and it is good that we're concerned about being good stewards, but there's something that's even more concerning, is that we have a bigger trash problem, and that's the trash that's in our hearts. All of humanity has been pervasively affected by sin, and it pollutes all of us. It pollutes each and every person on the planet Every person has been poisoned and tainted and corrupted by sin, but God's made a way for for man to be made clean. We remembered that this morning in the Lord's Supper. He's made a way for us to be free from our sins, and God sent His Son to come to the earth to, to live life fully and perfectly as a man, to say no to every temptation, and then to take our place and suffer and die for all the sins of the world. Talking about a massive cleanup effort and how God accomplishes this, how God spreads this, how God sends out the cleanup team is through ordinary people like you and me. Through ordinary people like these unnamed anonymous men of Cyprus and Cyrene who went to the largest city, literally the, the third largest city in the world at that time, but the largest city in all of Syria. And God exploded his good news in Antioch. It was an amazing reversal of the biggest problem we could ever face and it's freely available to to all who will say, yes God, I I know that I'm a sinner and I can't get clean on my own. Yes God, I must be clean by you. Please clean me Lord. Please make me free from my own sin. It it doesn't take a huge, complex thing. It takes us turning to God, repenting, and saying, Lord, would you, would you forgive me? You're my only hope. I'm going to turn from living for myself and I'm going to turn to living for you now. Because you've loved me by calling me and forgiving me and I belong to you now. And I'm committed to live steadfastly. And how he does that work, how he gets that word out, how he spreads out the cleanup team is by sending ordinary people like you and me It's a relatively simple message, but has the most amazing effects for all who believe it and place their faith in God. What an amazing reversal from back in in Acts chapter 6. Back in Acts 6, it was, think about it, the people who, who came and opposed Stephen, and if you remember or not, the people who opposed Stephen were men from Cyprus and Cyrene and the same areas that he, that are the gospel spreading to now. And yet the power of God for salvation is that he turns around the very people, the very kinds of people from the regions that oppose Stephen, he uses them to spread his good news. And isn't that true for you and me too? He turns all of us who were dead in our sins, none of us are any better than anybody else, and yet he turns us around and says, now I want you, you who were dead in sin, to go and, and rescue and other sinners, and I want to make them clean. They brought the good news about Jesus to Antioch. Antioch was huge. It was was third only behind Rome and Alexandria. It had a population of around half a million people. And and that day, that was massive. It was multi-ethnic. It was made up of Greeks and Syrians and Jews and Phoenicians and Persians and Arabs and Indians and Egyptians. And it was a cosmopolitan city. It was full of all kinds of religions. It was on a Mediterranean coast, about 15 miles really from the coast on a river, and, and it was far from a typical Jewish city. It was more like Las Vegas on the river. This was, this was not a family-friendly place. This was, this was not conducive. This, this seemed insurmountable. This, this grand city, this, this massive, cosmopolitan, multi-ethnic, multi-religious city, it must have been pretty intimidating. It must have been potentially daunting. But apparently these men of Cyprus and Cyrene, they were undaunted. They had an undaunted courage because of the different cultures and beliefs that they faced. They they weren't intimidated. They, They knew that they had been given the best news in the world. They knew that this news would transform everyone and everything in a relatively short manner of time. And, and notice in the Scripture, it doesn't say that anybody's telling them to do this. Nobody said to these men from Cyprus and Cyrene, well, you're going to go and you're going to talk to all these non-Jews. You're going to talk to all these Greeks. Nobody told them to do that. Well, I think that's important for us to see, too, that it's, it's used as ordinary people who are captured, really, by the grace of God, who are captured by the goodness of God, who are captured by Jesus. let me ask you are you captured by jesus are you captured by the goodness of god are you captured by the grace of god and does that just kind of flow from everything that you do without anybody telling you in your workplace as you go about doing what you do if you're a car salesman how you sell cars it makes a difference if you do that with integrity and honesty if you represent jesus you're preaching through how you're working In everything that you do, maybe you're involved in child care, you're preaching Jesus and how you treat those children. Maybe you're a business person, you're preaching Jesus and whether you walk with integrity and how you speak and what you speak of so nobody's telling these men, they're just going and they're, they're preaching Jesus as the Lord. And not, they're not just preaching Him in words, although they are preaching in words. You must preach in words. I believe they, they preached Jesus in everything they did. They showed that He really was Lord of their lives, that they belonged to Him. The question for us is, does, is it evident that God is Lord of our lives as well? Do we preach Jesus as Lord in everything that we do? It says that God blessed their teaching because in verse 21, look down your Bible, it says, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. What does that mean when it says the hand of the Lord was with them? Does God physically have a hand? Was his hand down on there? What, 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 what does that mean? You see, sometimes that language can be foreign to us today. As an anthropomorphism, as where it's, a, it's a figure of speech that It's to show that God's hand was with them to strengthen them, to guide them, to uphold them. His strong, mighty arm was with them. It means the Lord was blessing and affirming their preaching the Lord Jesus. And it means that God was enabling and empowering them. But I think it means even more. I think it could mean more than that. You see, if you were a first century Jew and you were reading Luke's Choice of words, it might have reminded you of a passage in Jeremiah, or maybe many passages in, in Ezra and Nehemiah when it talks about God's hand being with his people as they spread out, as they as they carried out his work of building walls, or in Jeremiah the prophet talks about making a new covenant to replace the one that God made when he took them by the hand. Look in your Bibles in Jeremiah thirty one. 31, it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Jacob, Judah, and not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand. When I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt, out of their captivity. My covenant they broke, he says, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. And God's hand was with His people as they preached this good news, this, this good news of a, of a new way that God's relating to people. No longer is God distant. We don't need to go through a priest or a pastor or somebody else to get to know God. God now speaks to our very hearts, and He forgives us of all of our sins, and He, he remembers them no more. So Luke is using the Scripture. He's, he's giving us very specific language about God's hand was with them. That should encourage you as you're going out, thinking about your workplace, your school, or maybe it's in your home when you have a bunch of unbelievers that you're, you're schooling at home. Whatever setting you find yourself in, God's hand will be with you. And He promises to lead you, to guide you. So now as they're preaching the good news about Jesus, they have their Father's blessing. And then it tells us the results of this, this preaching empowered by the Lord. It says, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Now this is one of the only places where it, it, it uses those two words in a different way. It doesn't just say those who believed in the Lord. It says a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And, and that, that's a, a some of the little small aside here, but there's some implications there for us. is that It's saying that mere belief is not enough. A great number who believed turned to the Lord, implying some who did believe did not turn to the Lord. So it's not enough to just believe, and that's important for us. Why do I mention that? Because as we go out into our communities, we're going out into a, an environment that's heard a lot about Christianity. Now, they've been misled. They've, they've heard different things about Christianity. They're, they're wrong. But some people have heard the right things about Christianity. And they say, oh, I believe in God. I believe in Christianity. But their lives don't reflect it. So we're not just called to, to preach the Lord Jesus, we're called to preach Jesus actually being our Lord, and the result is meant to be seen in people turning, people who believe turning to the Lord, turning from living for themselves and turning to living for God. Something interesting to note, so even though it's the first major time we see the gospel spreading to the Gentiles after Peter's preaching to Cornelius, these, these people, they don't, have any names they're not named elsewhere in the bible they went preaching Jesus though they and as they did idols fell and people were convicted and believed and turned to Jesus in the midst of a very dark city full of depravity and idol worship a city that was known for worshiping the false god Daphne where where there was temple prostitution and all manner just of awful things going on And yet, God shines His great light into this dark place through ordinary followers of Jesus. They were on a rescue mission. They saw their lives as a mission, and they they were like people walking through a dark cave with a flashlight, searching out people, shining the light of Jesus on everyone that they found. And people came to the light and were rescued. These unnamed, daring pioneers, they risked all, and yet they're very significant, the work of God. And Ajith Fernando once said that some of the most significant work for the kingdom has been done by unknown witnesses. That's encouraging. Some of the most significant work the kingdom has been done by unknown witnesses who are obedient to to Christ right where they are and where they do not attract much attention You may not feel like you're attracting very much attention, but if you are living as if Jesus is Lord, and if you're speaking about Jesus being your Lord and over all that you do and guiding you and leading you and that he is your source of strength and hope, it's going to have a great impact. And verse 22 and 23 tells us the report of this, this, this great awakening in Antioch. It came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. They sent Barnabas to Antioch. Then it says, when he came, he saw the grace of God and he was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. And God used Barnabas to establish his church and how he did it, the, I like the way the, the New American Standard says it, it says he, he strongly encouraged them. So that word really means, is to it's exhort, is to encourage, encourage with strength, to strengthen by encouragement. He didn't just practice magic. he didn't do anything spectacular. he simply encouraged them. What did Barnabas do that had such an effect? He brought encouragement to people who were new in the faith. He brought encouragement to those who were already in the faith. And I think we're, we're meant to see that what God have for us is that God establishes his church. How does God establish and build his church? Well, he establishes his church through encouragement. He establishes his church through encouragement. church in Jerusalem, they could have sent anybody. They could have sent Peter. They could have sent the sons of thunder who were loud and boisterous. They could have sent anybody, any of the 12 they could have sent, these, these great well-known leaders, and yet they sent Barnabas, this, this man whose, whose name, his real name was Joseph, who had been nicknamed Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, not because his dad's name was encouragement, <laughs> but because that's a very Jewish way of saying he he so embodies the principles of encouragement, he so lives this out that it's almost like he was born from encouragement. And so who do they send to establish the church? They send the son of encouragement. And what does he do? First thing he does when he came, he sees the grace of God. He, He doesn't judge them. He doesn't think, oh my goodness, the people that are coming to him are really messed up, and there's some prostitutes here, there's some some old school drug dealers, whatever kind of drug dealers. I'm sure they had them back in that day. Some, some crooks, the, the used camel salesmen. You know you had, they had them. They had to have had them, right? This camel's really good. You really like him. He's got a broken leg, but you don't know that. But, but Barnabas doesn't come and say, oh my gosh, this, this church is full of messy people. So, oh, this is really bad. No, he, he's able to see past those things, and he sees the grace of God he sees the grace of God at work. I think they sent him probably to because they knew he would be a great source of encouragement. And what did a new church need most? It needed encouragement. It needed to be exhorted to remain steadfast in the faith that they had received. And that's that's a that's a very different quality from what we find normally in humanity. See, we don't tend towards encouragement. We tend towards discouragement. We tend towards critiquing and critics. We tend towards tearing down and, and thereby building ourselves up and, and excusing ourselves from responsibility by discouraging and critiquing, complaining. And, and, and Barnabas doesn't go and, and say, well, here's the areas you're doing wrong. Here's the areas you're missing. That's not what he does primarily. He, he goes, he sees God's grace. He doesn't see all the weaknesses because I'm, I'm sure there are tons These are just ordinary ordinary people sharing the gospel. There was no pastors here that we can see. So he's going, and these people are probably a mess, but he goes and sees the grace of God at work. That's what he's looking for, and he saw the grace of God. Are, Are you looking for the grace of God at work? Are you encouraging where you see the grace of God at work? Are you exhorting people Because you see the grace of God. Does the grace of God make you glad or are you more aware of of weaknesses and faults and error and things you don't like? Remember Jonah in the Old Testament? How did he react? You see, God sent Jonah to go to the Ninevites. They were were not Jewish. They were a different nation and Jonah didn't really like the idea so he tried to run from God because he didn't want them to repent. And so Jonah though, he finally after after he gets thrown over, God has mercy on him, swallows him with his big fish to save his life because he was drowning. But God leaves him in there for three days so that Jonah gets the message that he needs to do what God's called him to do. And so Jonah goes and he's obedient after he gets spit out of his fish. And he goes to Nineveh and he preaches and he tells them the word that the Lord gave to him. But when he gives them a word, they repent. But what did, how did Joseph, Jonah react? Jonah, Jonah was not happy. He was depressed. He was angry. He was bummed out. He didn't respond godly. He, he, he was depressed. The people I hated have actually turned. How dare them! I, I, I was going to be faithful in the great prophet to declare this good news, but I didn't expect them to actually turn. I didn't want them to turn. And that's not the kind of attitude we see from Barnabas. Barnabas says, Oh, yeah, those people who previously we hated those people who we never would be around, who we separated from, who we wouldn't have anything to do with, those people who aren't like us, have different colors of skin and different ethnicities, and they speak differently, they act differently, they eat differently. Those people, oh, they've received the grace of God. That makes me glad. Does it make you glad to see the grace of God at work in people who are not like you, different ethnicities, they speak different, look different, talk different, eat differently? So Barnabas, he strongly encourages them to remain faithful to the Lord, to personally cling to God with all their hearts. And then he writes the reason that Barnabas responded this way in in contrast to those of the circumcision party. And he writes, look in verse 24, if you look down your Bibles for a moment, please, it says, for he was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith and a great many people were added to the Lord. He was a good man. Nowhere else in the entire book of Acts does it ever call anyone a good man. It's very rare in Scripture for someone to be called good. Barnabas wasn't this, before the New Testament era, wasn't this this hugely known guy. He wasn't an apostle at the time, and and yet he sent out. If you remember, Barnabas had been a resident of Jerusalem when the church was founded there, and he sold a piece of his own property, and he... He laid it at the feet of the disciples. He was so affected by the good news himself personally that he said, I want to give towards this, and I want to see other people's needs met because God has met my greatest need. And he supported Paul when others were hesitant initially. And he enabled Paul to be reconciled to the church. He was a reconciler, he was a supporter, he was an encourager. And then Luke says he was a good man because he was glad. He rejoiced in the grace of God and he encouraged. Luke has to say about him, he was a good man. Not only was he good, though, he was full of the Spirit and faith. And the result of being this man of encouragement, a man who saw the grace of God and was filled with the Spirit and faith, was that many people were added to the Lord. If, If you want to see, if you and I want to see many people be added to the Lord, I think Barnabas is a good model here for us of, Let's be encouragers. Let's be people who are full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit who see the grace of God at work in their own lives personally and say, I want to see this grace of God spread to others. Barnabas saw past the weaknesses and and past sins of of Paul. He saw the grace of God at work in him and and, and he reconciled the apostles to the man who had just just supervised the the murder of Stephen. Stephen. And he comes here and, and he sees past weaknesses and, and, and he sees the grace of God at work. He's looking past any racist tendencies he may have had and he looks past any cultural differences and he sees God at work here in Antioch and he rejoices, he's glad. And then he, then he encourages them to, to, to purpose, to, to purpose to unwaveringly remain faithful to Jesus. And isn't that good counsel for us today as well? We, we need to remain faithful to Jesus unwaveringly. Remember, we, we, we're, kept, we're kept steadfast in Him. It's to not turn aside from Him. This guy named Alexander McLaren. He once aptly said that many of us are so busy thinking about Christianity that we've lost hold of Christ. Although Aaron shared this morning in, in communion about how he was reminded of what Christ had done. And I think we need to be reminded of what Christ has done in our own lives to encourage us to remain steadfast and say, yes, this really is worth it. Yeah, it's really worth the cost. It's really worth living my life in such a way that everyone around me will be able to tell that I'm living for Jesus as Lord. In this ministry of Barnabas, it inspired others to, to desire God, to expect God, to depend upon God. Don't, don't you want to be like that? Don't you want to inspire others to expect God, to, to turn to God, to depend upon God, to encourage others? I think we can, we, we can be like Barnabas if we, if we have faith in God, if we're looking to see the grace of God at work and we're, we're practically pursuing, encouraging others to press into Jesus. But, but it wasn't all about Barnabas, we can see too. It's, as the church is growing, Barnabas, he's encouraging them, he's pointing them to Jesus, but he's also realizing that he can't do all of the teaching that needs to be done. So look down at verses twenty-five and twenty-six in your Bible, we can see a third truth that Luke's giving to us in this account very briefly here. It's that, that God grows his church through teaching. And Barnabas realizes that teaching is necessary because part of that great commandment, that great commission that Jesus gave to his disciples was not just go and all to all the world and, and preach the good news, but it was to teach them to obey. And, and Barnabas realized, you know, I can encourage them. I can do these things, but I, they really need teaching. And so what does he do? He goes and he looks for Saul, who's later called Paul. And even just thinking about that, the, the humility that Barnabas must have had. He, he's, he's been a Christian for many years. This is probably eight years or so after Saul had kind of gotten exiled out of Jerusalem because he was causing so much trouble and the disciples said, go back to Tarsus, please. Give us a little relief here. you are drawing too much attention. Uh, We don't know what what, what Saul was doing for those eight years, but it's likely that that might have been the time when when he was whipped, when he lost everything, when his family forsook him. We don't don't know, but but we know that Barnabas is thinking, "Who, who do I know? who's passionate about Jesus and can help me teach about who he is. And so he goes and he goes looking for, for Saul and Tarsus, and he finds him, and he brings him back to Antioch. I you see something else, too. He doesn't say he heard a word from God. It doesn't say that, and that God spoke to him through some audible voice, so that he read, read some tea leaves, did some kind of Christian mysticism. No, he, he, he's probably just thinking, okay, who can help me? Who knows how to speak to this culture? Tarsus wasn't, wasn't too far away. It was, was in Turkey modern-day turkey. So he goes, and he gets them, and he brings them back, and then, then notice as well, he doesn't say anything about Saul hearing this guiding voice. It's just normal Christianity. We need help. Could you come? Saul comes. It's kind of a model, really, to normative Christianity in the church today, too. When you see a need in the church, can you fill that need? Go, fill that need. Somebody says, how how do you need to hear a specific word from God when somebody says, hey, we need help here? No, consider that to be a word from God. Hey, Barnabas asked me, "I I can help him and go. So he realizes he can't do the work on his own. He needed somebody else to help instruct the people. He's not trying to get glory for himself, and that's really... Something for us to note as well is that as we go out, as we preach the good news about Jesus Christ, as we teach people, it's it's not to draw attention to ourselves or glory to ourselves, it's to point people to get to know our great God. So he finds them in verse 26, if you look down your Bibles there, and he goes back and it says that they stayed there and met with the church and taught a great many people for a whole year. And then as a side note, Luke mentions that it was in Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians. Think about that. Why was that? Why hadn't that happened anywhere else? Christianity now is, is, is a few years old. It's, it's at least 10 years old by now. And yet nowhere else had people thought of them as so associated with being a follower of Christ that they called them Christianos or, or Christ followers, Christians in our English language. But the people of Antioch recognized something so different about these disciples of Christ that they made up a new word, a new nickname for them. They called them Christians. Maybe it was an insult. Maybe it was said derisively. Maybe it was just a joke. Those Christ followers. But think about that. They were so known by the way that they lived and what they talked about, how they did their jobs, these normal, ordinary people that God was using to encourage, to build up, to strengthen. And they were so known by being as as followers of Jesus and everything they did that they were nicknamed Christians. That's so different than how that word is used today, isn't it? If you're not a a Muslim or a Jew or a Catholic, then you're a Christian, right? Well, that's not true. But we can become complacent with using that term. And so maybe we talk to somebody at work and say, well, I'm I'm a Christian. Maybe are they Christ followers? Do they look like Christ followers? Do you look like a Christ follower? Are we following Christ? Is, is our identity and what we speak about and what we live for so wrapped up in Jesus and who he is as our Lord that we become known as Christ followers to everyone around? Think about that for a moment. You see, our identity as disciples of Jesus is meant to inform how we live so that all of our lives is to revolve around Jesus as our Lord. And then our identity to be disciples is meant to, to encourage us to want to grow as disciples and then to go and make disciples. But if you don't get that first part right, then it's, we're not going to be growing. We're not going to be going and making disciples because our identity is not found in Him. So would it, if this was modern day Antioch, would it be said of us, look at those Christ followers, man, they're really following Jesus, this Christ they talk about, you can tell. The result of their teaching was that believers there were living like Christ so much they were called Christ followers. And they weren't just living for themselves either. Look in, in verse 27 to 30. It tells us their response when they encountered a prophecy that gave, told about a need. They weren't just thinking about themselves. They were grateful for the gift of salvation that they received, and they, and they gave in response. And the last truth we see in this passage is that God supports His church through giving. God supports His church. How does, so, so God uses ordinary people. He uses the means of encouragement to establish His church and he uses teaching to grow his church, and then what does he do to to support and expand his church? Well, he uses giving financially. Verse 27 tells us, in those days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and apparently the gift of prophecy and those who were frequently given this gift of prophecy wasn't uncommon to the early church, and I wish we had time to just have a little side note about that, that that prophecy was normative, and these these weren't flawless prophets. This wasn't writing Scripture. This wasn't the same as the Old Testament prophets. You see, the, the, the counter to an Old Testament prophet, the, the, the equal to an Old Testament prophet's office was the office of the apostle. The apostles wrote Scripture like the prophets of old, but yet there was this other gift that continued that was fallible. It was the gift of prophecy, and we know that it was fallible because this same Agabus who came and gave this prophecy, later on in the book of Acts, we're going to see that, in a couple months, he gives a prophecy to Paul and tells Paul he's going to be bound in a certain way. But he gets, he gets the main idea right. Yeah, Paul's going to be imprisoned and taken away, and he won't be in control of his own destiny. But he gets the details wrong. And yet he's, he's still giving a valid prophecy from God. And in this church, they hear this prophecy from Agabus, and, and they hear these words inspired by God and share with others. And Agabus gets at least the big picture right here, and he stands up, and he foretold the spirit by the spirit there'd be a great famine all over the world. That it was, it was all over the Roman world, and, and we know that, that that famine really did occur later in the reign of Claudius, and, and Claudius actually had a hard time as an emperor because there were three separate famines that occurred. So the exact details weren 't specific here, but yet. They experienced a famine in Judea many years later in 44 to 48 A.D. And even though it wasn't a current need, the disciples responded to the prophecy. They responded to God speaking. They responded to what was confirmed as this is from the Lord for us because it coincides with Scripture, which is we we see principles in Scripture that it's good to give to those in need. And so that's why they're responding. And so they see a need and they give in response to it. And and we see this principle here that God uses giving to support the church. It's a principle that's relevant for us too. God uses giving to support this church. God uses giving to support his mission. God uses giving to support the gospel going forth to support those who are in mission. That's why we give a portion of our money to a mission in Tokyo as, as the gospel is going to really unreach people in the city of Tokyo, Japan. And yet we're, we're also giving towards different missions in, in northeast Columbia and in a church being established there. But it requires actually that you as a church give towards that mission. Now as a church we're not all about money, but we're, we don't want to be ashamed about talking about God uses all of our lives and all that we do to further his mission. Every part of us is called by God to serve him. And so we can't just reserve one part of our lives and say, God, you own everything about me, but you don't own my money, Lord. And if you've been in this church for a while, you, you know that we're, we don't harp on money. We don't harp on, on trying to coerce or manipulate. And, and, and that's never to be the case, ever. But also, when we come to scriptures like this, we want to be clear. As everyone determined, it says that as disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, they sent relief to the brothers living in Judea, sending it by the elder to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. They weren't responding to a current need, but they were placing their faith in God and saying, God, you call us to live differently, to live as if you really are Lord. And so because you are Lord, we're going to give of what you've given to us. The New Testament model, it's not based on a legalistic principle of of a tithe or 10%, and so we can be really happy because we're giving 10% so we can feel good about ourselves now. No, the New Testament model is everything that we have, everything that we are, belongs to Jesus now. He is Lord. That means ruler over us in every part of our lives. And so the New Testament question that we need to ask, as they did, as each person according to his abilities, Lord, what would you have me keep what am I able to give here? It, it kind of throws the whole legalism motivation on his head, doesn't it? It's not, it's not, Lord. What can I? What should? What should I give? It's Lord. What should I keep? Lord, so that I can further Your mission. All my life can be lived in submission to You. We, we were debating whether to take a, a week aside and talk about this for our church because I believe, boy, there's so many timely issues in this passage for us as a church. And we could talk about, we could drill down on talking about prophecy or giving or encouragement, some of these major themes. We're going to come back to some of these throughout the book of Acts. And so in January, we're going to be talking about this, what, is it, what does it look like to, to live a generous lifestyle. Later on, we'll be talking about some of the themes about faith and, and how do we live in faith and how do we, how do we live a, a life that encourages others. At this point, the the church in Antioch wasn't responding to current need, but they were giving, and think about this, they were giving to their predominantly Jewish brothers, the ones who were previously hostile towards them. They're saying, oh, the good news about Jesus has so affected us, and we're so grateful, we're going to give to them, because we know that it came from them. We know that good news, it it, it traveled by their mouths to us. John Stott likes how he speaks of this passage. He says, whatever our political and economic convictions may be, Whatever our political and economic convictions may be these are plainly biblical principles that is ability on the one hand need on the other and how to relate them to each other these principles should characterize the family of God and it characterized this church in Antioch they were giving towards the need they were as each one was able they were giving towards the need and it says everyone determined and that's something else too is that we're not meant to be haphazard in how we give we're to determine let me give as much as i can as much as i'm able let me give to the purposes that god has not because the church is greedy because god uses that to spread his good news to establish the church to provide for people to care for people in practical needs and then maybe luke also shows us this for a few more reasons Maybe it's to show the importance of giving not only towards the mission of the gospel and sustaining the needs of the church, but maybe it's to show that the good news of Jesus, it reconciles people who were previously hostile to each other. It was just seen in their giving, in their generosity. Maybe he gives us the account to show how the early church saw themselves as responsible for the care of their brothers and sisters elsewhere and that we're to see ourselves as responsible for the practical care of our brothers and sisters. Maybe that's another principle that Luke's showing us, perhaps. Maybe it was to demonstrate that there's a oneness in the church that goes across all geographical and ethnic boundaries, and it was based on their new identity in Christ so that nothing separated them from people who were not like them. And you saw that reflected in how they lived and and their generous lifestyle. And I think Luke's writing all of this because God's wanting the reader and he wants us to see that God's using ordinary means of giving to support his mission. It doesn't seem spectacular when you drop your check in an offering bucket or if you write a check out to the mission in Tokyo. It doesn't seem spectacular, but God uses just ordinary means like that. So we have to ask ourselves, is, are we determined to support ourselves only? Or are we determined to give everyone according to his own ability, not out of compulsion, but willingly? Are we caring for ourselves only or caring for the needs of others? we Are supporting ourselves only or are we supporting the mission God's called us to? You see, all of this is under that that broad umbrella of of God uses ordinary people and ordinary means to do great things, to expand his church, to to have the, the greatest cleanup message ever go out. This message by which all the dirty people of the world, which included us, by the way, can be gathered up and made clean. God's given us this, this great cause, this great mission to live for, and he's given this great mission, this great cause to ordinary people like you and me so that we can spread all throughout and collect up all. And said, so come and be clean. Come and be made new. Come and be made right in him. You know, most of us are ordinary people. But God can use ordinary people to accomplish extraordinary things. So I want us to ask ourselves, are we spreading this good news in our daily lives and businesses. Can people tell that Jesus is our Lord through our actions and speech? Do we see work as our mission? Are we a means of encouragement when we see the grace of God at work in other people in the church? Do we tell them of that? Do we encourage them? Do we build them up? Do we encourage them when we see, I see the grace of God at work in you, because of that, remain steadfast and faithful to Jesus? And you can, you can remain faithful because I see the grace of God at work. I would encourage you, you will remain faithful because He is faithful. Even when we're faithless, He doesn't deny those who are His. Are we pursuing teaching personally to grow like this church needed teaching? Are we pursuing teaching? Are we, are we teaching others? Are we realizing that, you know, the only way for Christians to grow is to teach? And so if you're reaching out to somebody, you need to, Great, they become a believer, now teach them. And lastly, are we giving to support the mission that God's called us to? If so, God's gonna use these very ordinary means through very ordinary people to expand his church and bring many people to him. Let's pray, and as we pray, go ahead and ask the band to come forward. God, thank you that you are a great God, that you are not limited by any boundaries in our own minds you are not limited by our preconditions our preconceived notions you are not limited by what we think is our limit Lord you are not limited by what our abilities are Lord you are not limited by Lord our our racism Lord Lord you can break through all of those things because the gospel the good news about Jesus is the power of God for salvation to tear down the walls so God, I ask that you would use all of us who are ordinary people. Lord, I pray that you would, you would let us live for you and be so aware that you, Jesus, are our Lord, that people around us would say, look at those Christ followers, I want to be like them. What is it that motivates them? And God, I pray that we would just live for you in all that we do, that we see our lives as a mission, that we would live our lives with open hands, being willing to, to give and to encourage others and to teach others. And God, I pray that all of this would be used that you might spread the good news and clean up all of humanity. In your name we pray. Amen. Please stand.